0: But actually when it came down to bike designs, I'm, I'm pretty old school, so I actually design by hand on a big piece of tracing paper, you know, scale one to one. And I literally will just keep drawing over and over, tracing over and over until I get the feel and the sensation and the emotion in the product that I want.
1: G'day, hello and welcome back. Uh, 2019 Pelican Podcast is uh, back in action. So for the delay in the podcasts, been a bit busy on the road, trying to organise the next kind of round of podcasts, taking me into the new year. So, but now uh, we're back. Loads of shows to kind of go through and get live and published. Uh, I'm also switching over to some new providers, um, ramping up some other social things I'm up to as well. Um, So it's kind of been uh, a bit of a pause really to kind of reflect on what I've done for the last four episodes and time to really switch things up and try something different. So over a month ago, I got talking with chapter two. Michael Pride started up this business and now works with Chris Young. Uh, Chris Young is the marketing guy. So cycling industry is something I know quite well, you know, the event side and also the commercial side and also the, the athletic side. But sometimes you kind of come up against someone and you talk to them and I kind of thought I knew it all, really. I kind of knew enough to have a conversation about. But actually, when I got talking to Mike, um, I realized actually I was well at my depth. There was stuff he was talking about which was completely blew my mind. Um, So if you're really interested in frame building, uh, creating your own business um, in the bike world and also creating your own bikes, this is such a podcast that will give you everything you kind of need to inspire you. Um, There was such, depth to this conversation uh, and I sat down with Chris and Mike and we spoke at length about everything really uh, from marketing to the bikes to building the bikes to the inspiration to the design to drawing to making the, the models uh, and it actually became quite a big conversation that on reflection I'm going to split it into two so we're going to talk with Mike which is the conversation you're going to hear now uh, and we're going to release a bonus episode which is talking to Chris more about the marketing of uh, said bike brand. So chapter two, tune in, listen. If you've got any feedback, hit me up on the Instagram, Peddling Podcast. And I'm also on a new podcast hosting service called Anchor. Uh, If you use that, it's a great little tool. Uh, I'm gonna use it more often and share with you guys what I'm kind of doing on it. Uh, You can also feedback on the show with audio. I can have conversations on it as well. So uh, it'd be quite exciting to really kind of get to know this new tool. So let's get talking to, to Mike Pride. Mike, take it away.
0: So uh, I'm Michael Pride. I'm the uh, founder of Chapter 2 Bikes. Um, I was originally from Hong Kong, actually spent most of my life living in Hong Kong, grew up in Hong Kong, but uh, you know when I left secondary school I moved to Manchester in England and I studied architecture there for about 6 years and graduated in uh, 1996, returned to Hong Kong the year before the handover and I uh, was pretty fortunate that I was uh, landed um, at a time when there was a huge construction boom in Hong Kong. There was a lot of airport related projects that were underway and I landed a job with Norman Foster, pretty well known architecture architect around the world. And I was uh, one of the younger architects working on the airport project. And I was there for three and a half years. And when that project was finished, I was actually the last architect standing. <laughs> I sealed up all the boxes and uh, you know, signed off and walked away from that project and worked for the head office in Hong Kong because they had a Hong Kong satellite office. I worked for them for a little bit longer and then of course the, uh, the Asian financial crisis came along, hit Hong Kong pretty hard, and uh, Fosters uh, retreated out of Hong Kong and closed the office. So then I worked for a local firm of architectures, architects called IDIS.
1: So how then did you get into cycling and racing? So I was
0: racing, I was actually a, a semi-professional downhill mountain biker for quite a few years. So downhill was my thing, Mount, I came from uh, BMX as a kid, all the way through you know, the introduction of mountain bikes, disc brakes, suspensions, so I went through that whole te- technology
1: change. So what's the scene of, kind of Hong Kong like? Give us a description of what, what's going on there when you're racing. Uh, Hong Kong is, is quite interesting because it, it's obviously a very small
0: small scene, but it's a very, very um, dedicated scene. So when people in Hong Kong kind of put their their ideas and their weight and their money behind a particular activity, they generally really kind of go for it. So you know they, they buy the equipment, they, they, they train hard, they ride hard. And the downhilling in Hong Kong in particular is very technical because you know whilst hong kong looks like a concrete jungle from the outside as far as the media is concerned actually only 30 percent of the available land is built on and the reason for that is that it's very very hilly so there's a lot of steep climbs and hills so the downhilling was very technical and uh you know as a result actually i got pretty badly injured and over the years i had uh, about five surgeries a couple of screws in my body knees rebuilt shoulders rebuilt and uh, you know, and after a while, I decided maybe mountain biking wasn't my thing. So from your previous kind of history jobs work, um, how did chapter two come about? Yeah, so you know, from architecture, I, you know, I, I worked as an architect for about eight years after returning to Hong Kong. So around 2004, my father, who had a, a pretty successful water sports business based out of Hong Kong, he uh, asked me if I wanted to join the company. And frankly, at that particular time, I was getting a little disillusioned with the architectural profession you know, extremely long hours and not not necessarily the lifestyle that I really wanted to go forward with. My father had a company called Neil Pride Limited, which was founded in Hong Kong in 1970. But he's a Kiwi originally. He left uh, New Zealand in 1963 and ended up uh, living in Hong Kong for most of his life. And actually, he's still there now. Uh, They built a very, very large um, water sports company called Neil Pride Limited, with offices, um, you know, in, in Europe, America, with factories in China and Thailand. And at one point, they were probably employing about 2,700 people. So it's a pretty significant company. But uh, you know, as with any, new, any company, you know, it runs its course. And then in 2015, you know, uh, at his ripe 70-plus age, he decided that uh, he would uh, retire. So his partners in the business, his financial partners, bought him out. So in 2015, he, he left the company. And uh, actually, by then, I was already working at the company. I joined Neil Pride Limited in 2004 and established a bicycle business within Neil Pride. So it was a Neil Pride branded bike selling into the various different countries that the Neil Pride brand was already selling into for the water sports. But for, for various different reasons, it wasn't necessarily that successful because you know, we were effectively doing what all the other brands were doing, trying to go after that racing market. But of course, the big brands like Trek and Specialized, they have a lot of horsepower in distribution and in marketing. So for various reasons, we didn't really get any traction. But uh, when he sold the business in 2015, uh, I left the company at the same time. So then we, we basically sat down and we thought about, okay, you know, you've got a bit of money now that you've sold the business and I was fortunate enough to sell my house in Hong Kong. What do we do now? So is cycling already on your mind at this point? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we, you know, the, the interesting thing about being at Neil Pride for, for all those years, you know, that's eight plus years, was that it was uh, a bit of an education. So we learnt a lot about, you know, what you can and cannot do in the bicycle market. Uh, what, the, uh, frankly, you know, a lot of the mistakes that we made.
1: And those kind of mistakes you're talking about, are, we, are, we, are you saying like these are manufacturing kind of mistakes that you've been making? Uh, no, not at all. The manufacturing part um, in Asia is actually incredibly
0: mature and very sophisticated. So the factories in, in uh, China and in Vietnam and, and Taiwan can make extremely good products, good engineering. So the product actually is not the problem. It's in terms of the way we branded the product, the way we marketed the product. At the end of the day, we were doing what all the other brands were doing, telling the same story about racing, about you know, trying to be the best product. But at the end of the day, without a Tour de France team, you're slightly disadvantaged because to the eyes of the consumers, if you don't have a Tour team, then somehow your product is inferior. So you know, we learned a lot of lessons during that period. So we took all that learning you know, with us when we left the company and we decided to um, basically map out a way forward, and to redefine what bicycles could be in the future. And that's how Chapter Two kind of started. A lot of it was driven by me as far as how I wanted to position a particular brand, how I wanted to develop the products. But we felt that you know we wanted to be in a location that was would inspire cycling. It would inspire people to ride bikes in New Zealand with its outdoor culture. It's technology with carbon fiber and aerodynamics with yachting. It was a
1: kind of ideal place to do it. Okay, so talk through the original idea you kind of had for for the bike in Chapter 2.
0: Yeah, Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, I've been a, a cyclist pretty much all my life, you know, racing mountain bikes and BMX. And as a designer, I always loved those incredibly boutique brands. I was a huge fan of brands like Fesca, Enigma, Firefly, Vanilla Workshops. Speedwagon, all those brands that people kind of look at and think wow that's just beautiful but then you, you, they have some challenges of their own first of all you know they're, they're made in a, in a process which is you know very bespoke one piece at a time and um, and also you know the, the waiting time to, to have one of those custom products is incredibly long so it could be up to you know 15 to 18 weeks and a pretty hefty price tag as well so you know we we basically mapped out a way of Developing a brand that had the essence of what people were looking for in terms of a boutique product
1: But at the same time we could deliver that at a reasonable price So I mean would you say in the in the cycling industry that would be like ultimate sweet spot? You've got something that's amazing, but also something that you can deliver when you want
0: Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of the Eureka moment. It's kind of you know create that desirability But able to be able to deliver it immediately at a reasonable price. That was probably the you know, if you were to just kind of wrap everything up into one single statement, that would be what it is. And that is a big fucking challenge. It is a big challenge because, you know, at the end of the day, to develop a product, to design a product, um, to, to get it properly engineered, work, look for a supplier, that all takes time. So when I moved to New Zealand from Hong Kong, I basically spent almost two, a year and a half without income, just working from my living room and, uh, you know, it was during that period when I met Chris you know, who ended up becoming um, my marketing guy. Both creative people, but in different ways. So we often share ideas, but we also debate ideas. And then that kind of um, synergy really works because at the end of the day, it's, it's easy to convince yourself that you've got a great idea, but can you convince somebody else that you've got a great idea is the challenge. And so that pushing and pulling, you end up with a better product, whether it's marketing or it's a physical product.
1: Okay, so let's start with the bike. When did the first bike that you made first begin? You back?
0: So, um, when, when Neil sold his business, he, um, was, uh, he had to sign a two year non compete arrangement with the, with the new buyers, the new owners of the company. So, that didn't finish until the 1st of July of 2017. But of course, we did a lot of the work up front. So, when I moved here in 2016, January, we basically started designing the first bike, which is the Terre. So, that took a year and a half to come to market. So, typically, with any project, it's about 18 months from the start of actually drawing a product to actually delivering the first product into the market.
1: So when you're crafting the bike, thinking about the bike and, and drawing up a with spec for it, how much does your kind of technical background in architecture play in the, in the role uh, of, of understanding the bike and the setup and the build?
0: Yeah, the, the interesting thing is when I was an architect, I actually used CAD a lot. So I was fully uh, fluent in uh, 3D modeling using various different CAD software. So at the Fosters we used MicroStation, which is a pretty powerful package. So we were designing buildings in 3D and doing animations, doing walkthroughs and, and all sorts of really cool stuff. But actually when it came down to bike designs, I'm, I'm pretty old school. So I actually design by hand on a big piece of tracing paper, you know, scale one to one. And I literally will just keep drawing over and over, tracing over and over until I get the feel and the sensation and the emotion in the product that I want and because I was an architect originally, I live in a very three-dimensional world. So even though I'm drawing in two dimensions, like a side view, always in my head, I know exactly how the tube sections look, if I was to rotate the frame, how it would look. So I'm very, very aware how it would look as a finished product. So after I've designed it in 2D, it's a case of then taking sections every 10, 15 centimeters along each tube to define the different sectional profiles and then to use you know various different companies we have in New Zealand or we, with our suppliers to then extrapolate
1: that into a 3D 3D model. So it, it sounds like to me like you're obviously quite uh, creative and you're kind of free to just kind of do what you want, sketch what you want, and, and build something you want. So, but are there any constraints kind of like holding you back um, just like you doing kind of anything you do want to do? There are there are constraints. I mean there are a couple of constraints. That the
0: key one is probably. The uci rules so the uci predict, basically you know prescribes certain rules that and how you can design the bike in terms of the box rules so each tube section has to sit inside an eight centimeter box and it has to be a, di- a diamond shaped frame which is why every bike in the pro tour level you know by the time you strip the paint off looks quite similar so there are some dimensional requirements that you need to to fit okay but then on top of that there's there's uh, budgeting requirements. So you know people think that just because you can design a bike you know it could be the most expensive bike but then they you know the most expensive bike isn't necessarily the one that sells in the market. So when we start a project we've always got a price in the fact from the factory in mind. So what is the the factory price that we're going to get. So it's about designing the product working extremely closely with the factory to define the various characteristics such as the head tube stiffness, bottom bracket stiffness because if you put a lot of stiffness in there, you know, and you add a lot of carbon in there, it can add weight, it could actually dull the quality of the frame. So it's trying to keep all those balances together to get the perfect product at the price that you need out of the factory so that you can sell it in the market at a reasonable price.
1: So when you're sketching away, you're thinking about the design, you know, how much of a role does your experience in racing, cycling and your previous kind of uh, roles kind of play a factor in it? And Really I want to know, like, how, how, what's your kind of thinking when you're doing it? How does your mind kind of work around the, the sketching, the design, the thinking?
0: Yeah, it, it kind of goes both ways because sometimes when, when you're designing something, you know, you, you kind of have that spur of moment where you're incredibly creative for those couple of days and you're drawing something really amazing and then, you know, you kind of let it sit on the drawing table for a couple of days and then you come back to it on the third or fourth day and you look at it and you think, oh my god, what the hell was I thinking? You know, I, I like things to be very simple. I like the silhouette of the bike to be very, very clean. So when we designed the Terre, I started with a, with a classic horizontal top tube. You know, having been in cycling for all those years, I started in the old days of uh, Colnago and Pinarello, all the steel and aluminum frames that they had, which went up in one centimeter increments. You know, and it was actually giant bikes who created the whole sloping top tube. But throughout my, my kind of riding time when I was racing, as a youngster, it was all horizontal top tubes. So I kind of had that idea that I wanted to design something that had a classic look. So it was all about the silhouette. So I I didn't really look at the the profiles in terms of the sections and the three dimensions. I started with just looking at a very clean and simple silhouette of the bike. So very black on white. If you were to paint the frame black, how it would stand out against the the white background and things like that. And then after that, when I was happy with the silhouette, Then I went back and said, okay, so we've got a really nice looking silhouette now, and how do you apply the modern technology to it, which is aerodynamics, the way you put the carbon fiber on the frame, the stiffness that you wanted. So, and there's always a bit of a push and pull because sometimes the tube tube sections don't necessarily work that well mechanically or in engineering terms. So then you have to go back and adjust it. So there's always this tension between performance and aesthetics, and it's about working working those different kind of uh, parameters into something that you really want.
1: Okay, so well, so what happens from there then? So you've, you've, you've sketched it all out, you've got your design, you know what you want. Um, What's kind of the next steps from there before kind of like going to production? There must be like a, a middle ground that you need to test and, and create a, a prototype and stuff like that. So how does all that work?
0: So what we do is that we get a 3D uh, prototype made and it's not a 3D printing. We just basically CNC the, uh, the entire frame
1: out of a big block of ABS. So, so for those that don't know, can I explain what the CNC machining is?
0: Yeah, CNC is um, it's like a milling machine. So it's a, it's a drill piece which is flat at the bottom and it basically cuts away layers of material. So, you know, the more sophisticated machines, they are what we call a 5-axis, uh, um, you know, 3D cutting machine. So basically out of a block of material, it cuts out the form of the, of the actual frame. And of course, you know, the block of ABS doesn't often come in such large sizes because we want the frame to be made in a scale one to one so that we can actually pick it up and look at it in different light and and angles and things like that. So it's often a a composite of parts which are bonded together. But then it's sanded down with putty like a car, like you're filling a car paint and putty filling. And then you paint the whole thing normally in a a light gray because with a light gray color, you can actually see how the light can fall on the frame. So that's how we, we do it and then after that you, you generally go back to the CAD drawing and you make those adjustments after that it's a bit of leap of faith because you know you then reverse engineer the frame into a mold which is
1: a stainless steel clamshell mold so the cnc uh, the prototype you've made and set up i mean is there any kind of functional way to use that and test that yourself
0: no the, the cnc frame is purely on an aesthetic level okay. so it, it's, it's non-structural it's made out of abs so what we do then is that basically you know The frame ABS is a positive because it's a solid material, then they reverse engineering it so that you basically have the negative. So you've got the left and right clamshell molds and then from there you actually lay the carbon fiber inside the molds and you make the first prototype. And based on engineering principles and carbon layups that we work with the factory on, we're pretty close to meeting the various international standards and also the stiffness to weight ratios that we want and then you make that first frame and then there's a, there's a process of about three or four weeks where you're putting the, the frame onto various machines to test those KPIs and then you adjust the carbon fiber layups up or down in various different areas within the frame to dial that, that performance that you want. And it's a bit of a dark art, I mean, there isn't a science to where you can just work out the numbers. Just through years of experience I know that a deflection of the bottom bracket in a particular way Will will feel a particular way when you're riding it, and it's the same for the head tube. So the head tube and the bottom bracket are the two main areas that defines the quality of the ride and the performance of the frame. So that's that's what we work with, spend and spend a lot of time working on.
1: So can you tell me more about the, uh, the 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 actual framing? So materials being used and how does that kind of all work and what kind of thoughts go into that?
0: Yeah. Well, there's a couple of factors. I mean, for example, we. We only use Torre carbon, and Torre are the market leaders in composites for sporting goods. So they make tennis rackets, they make uh, parts for yachts and bicycle business as well, as well as aerospace. So all of our frames are 100% Torre carbon, made from Japan. You know, so the quality and the tolerances on that particular um, product is very, very high. So you know that because the tolerances are so tight, you don't have to add excess material in there to get the performance that you want. So therefore you can keep the weight relatively low, okay? So I can't really comment on some of these other uh, brands and products that you see in the more mass market, but I suspect that they're probably using carbon fiber from other sources, you know. So the so the first point is, is always the, choosing the correct carbon fiber. And then the second point is, is defining the KPIs. So it's the head tube to stiffness, bottom bracket stiffness, the seat seat post stiffness all those things that that encapsulates the quality of the ride and the quality of the performance and like i said it's not a science it's a bit of a dark art and it's just through and through feel and through experience that you know that okay if i had a head tube of this stiffness the steering is going to be good however vertically it's still going to be compliant enough to take the sting out of any road chatter or big bumps and things like that so you know i don't give that away easily so it's it's a bit of the IP
1: within my own mind about how I design bikes. Okay, so I've got to ask, because the stiffness of frames is the most talked about thing, and I guess flexibleness as well, like how, how does all that kind of play a role in when you're building a bike? Yeah, it, it, it can mean in
0: different ways. So if, if I look at the, um, the bottom bracket on its own, for example, so if the bottom bracket is stiff, it means that the pedal force that you're putting into the pedals that transfers through the crank and through the chain into the rear wheel the power that you're putting in there, you're not losing that through the actual structure. It gets directed straight to the back wheel. Okay, so that's that's in terms of like forward propulsion. But at the same time, if you design a frame where the vertical compliance is too stiff, it means that when you're seated on the bike, you know, every little bump that you hit, every little chatter that you get on the roads, especially in New Zealand, where the roads are not sealed, it's incredibly uncomfortable. So, you know, over a long period of, of riding of, you know, say over an hour and a half, that kind of fatigue and that vibration that comes through to you through the saddle and through the handlebars can actually make you more tired and fatigued. So there's a lot of these different types of KPIs that work together and sometimes against one another. So by having a, a bottom bracket that's too stiff, it, it's good for the power, but then it could be uncomfortable. Having a seat stay which is too stiff, you know, means that the frame doesn't twist so much, so it means that it's uncomfortable, but then You know, so it's always, I wouldn't use the word compromise, but it's just finding that perfect kind of um, recipe that gets you the feel that you want. And it changes from bike to bike. So our first bike, which is the all round bike, the Terre, we wanted that to feel a particular way. It's not a pure racing bike, but it has racing performance. So it's got some performance uh, comfort built into it. But then with our Rare, air which is an aero road bike, it's purely about aerodynamics. So when we start a new project, we're trying to define who would buy this bike? You know, what is your typical consumer that you're trying to attract in terms of performance, in terms of price point? So we design around that to fit that requirement.
1: So, okay, so f- from then on then, to what, what happens? Do you, when do you make that commitment? When do you push the button and say, okay, let's go?
0: Yeah, well, what we what we do is that we, we're managing our suppliers on, on a monthly level. So what we do is we, we call that uh, continuous manufacturing. So the really big guys that specialize in the treks of the world, you know, they have to place orders, you know, and make forecasts to their suppliers a year in advance. So they're basically trying to predict and forecast what their demand is for the product. But of course, with a startup and a small boutique brand like us, we have a little bit more flexibility, we're quite nimble. So what we try to do is that we're doing constant manufacturing. So we're making quantities slowly per month, and we're getting deliveries on a monthly level from the factories and we're replenishing what we sell. And there's a certain advantage to that because we can also measure how the market is responding with our product and not get overcommitted on inventory. So by by you know turning the, the gas on and off effectively on the manufacturing, we can, you know, we can basically either sell more or sell less without getting caught out on
1: too much inventory or too less inventory. And so this is that you know that amazing sweet spot we were talking about earlier, that vanilla workshop type craftsmanship as well as mass market and being able to get the bike to people as quickly as possible. Yeah, I
0: mean, those guys make amazingly beautiful bikes, but at the end of the day, it's one guy or two guys with a blowtorch in a garage making a beautiful bike. You know, but you know what we're trying to do here is make a beautiful-looking bike, but with a process that has performance built into it so it's not just about looking great but actually it's, it's a carbon fiber monocoque frame it's a pro level quality frame with Toray carbon so you're not just buying something that looks beautiful it's going to ride just like a pro quality bike
1: all right so, so like so what do you do then so what's this, how do you supply people like do you go directly to consumers do you go through um trade like how does all that kind of whole next big chunk of work happen yeah we, actually
0: it depends that? on which market so we've as with any startup, you know, but after you've kind of pulled the trigger and started the business, you know, you're navigating change. So, you know, the original plan for Chapter 2 was to go with a much more direct model. But actually we found that within Asia, we had a lot of traction with dealers. So bike shops in Asia really loved the product and they wanted to be involved. So with, with the way in which we priced the product and the manufacturing costs that we had, there was actually sufficient margin in the business to offer them a slice of the pie as well. So actually the reason why we've been able to get uh, so much traction in Asia is because we've decided to always work with just the best dealer. So instead of trying to sell to a lot of different dealers in a lot of these Asian cities like, you know, like in Kuala Lumpur and Bangkok, we try to work with just a select small quantity of dealers but make sure that they're really professional dealers, they have the right kind of clientele, they're really service driven and community driven shops because they're the shops which are surviving and thri- and thriving in this internet age because they're much more focused on service and on communities. So they have a loyal set of customers which we can then deliver product to. So can you
1: talk me through kind of what the market's like in, in Asia and how it all kind of works?
0: Um, so in Asia we're pretty much, you know, I would say that we're an Asia-Pacific brand. So we started off in New Zealand as a brand, but we do a lot of our uh product quality control and and inventory management out of our Hong Kong office, so we're actually delivering products from our Hong Kong office and with New Zealand and and, um, Hong Kong, we have actually a pretty large part of the market sitting in between with uh, pretty affluent clientele, so people love the sport, they, they, they love to ride and they love to spend their money, so we've actually been able to capture a lot of the market share in Asia because of our positioning as far as the business and the brand is concerned.
1: So the the, the, the way you set things up over in Asia, um, working with more independent bike shops, um, allowing customers to kind of build their own specs with your um, frame sets, would you say that's the, the most obvious way to go? And, and does it really work? Well, we're, we're not trying to exclude the dealer. I mean,
0: you know, there's this kind of modern conception that, you know, because you're on the internet, you have to cut out the business end of things. At the end of the day, the dealers they serve an incredibly important part of the buying process for a consumer. You know, first of all, they, have a, they provide a touch point, a point where people can ask questions, they can feel the bike, see the bike, and uh, you know, actually just get to appreciate the quality of the design. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to be able to provide bikes which are really beautiful, and these shops, and these very boutique shops that we're in, they're positioned in a particular way that can actually sell that type of product. And because we only sell frame sets, it actually engages the dealer in a process of bespoke designing the bike for them. So it's not just a case of going in there and a consumer having a particular price point in mind and being shown a 105 bike or an ultimate bike. Buying a chapter two bike is, it's a bit like a project. You know, as you go in there, you select the frame that you want, the color that you want, the bike shop will help you size it up and then help you to select all the components that you need or the ones that you want based on your budget. So, you know, whilst we don't sell a complete bike, What you see on Instagram is a pretty good reflection of the type of clients that we have. Because all the bikes that you see on on social media are all built with Campagnolo, Super Record, E-Tap, only the best products. So people are taking the opportunity to buy something which is really beautiful and bespoke with good performance and to build their dream bike.
1: So when I spoke to Alistair Warwell um, over at Walls, one of the questions I asked him, put towards him was like, you had to give advice to anyone opening a bike shop, um, what would that be? Interestingly, I mean, quite obviously, was know your market, know who you're talking to, know how you're going to communicate to them. Um, would you say you've you've done something similar here with uh, Chapter Two?
0: Yeah, we're trying to carve out a niche. I think the end of the day, you can't be everything to everybody. You know, what I mean, we don't want to dilute our brand message by trying to sell, you know, kids bikes, and mum and pop bikes, commuter bikes. At the end of the day, I have my particular passion, my particular DNA, and I know where my brand wants to go. And I don't want to dilute that by producing everything just because I have a channel to sell it through. At the end of the day, I want products that I can ride myself, things that inspire me. So a lot of it is, is inspired by what I want to ride more than anything else. And thankfully that's transpired into a product that people also like.
1: All right, let's talk the the, the, the holy grail of uh, any kind of bike business, or any business really, uh, marketing. Um, how, how do you go about it? Like. You're building a bike, you've got a bike ready. How do you actually tell people what you've got and how you do it and what's important to you and why they should buy it? Well,
0: I think, you know, as, as with any brand, I think the first touch point often with a lot of consumers is social media. So we've spent quite a lot of time and effort to develop a, a good following. And whilst it's still building and it's still its infancy, I think the foundations of what we're building is really strong. So we have a particular brand DNA and we're trying to develop that into a much larger audience. And you know, that involves a certain amount of um, social media paid advertising to help reach a, a broader audience. But you know, the, we try to define what the message is all the time and it's very, very clear. Um, but you know, at the end of the day is as a consumer, people get their information from many, many different sources. You know, there there are guys who ride and, and, and they live in coffee shops, and they live on Instagram and Facebook, but there's definitely a generation out there who don't really use social media that much, it's not an important part of their life. They still like to pick up a magazine, they like to read a magazine, it's a coffee table a kind of experience. But then there's the other part which is you know, people who who go on the internet, they Google for particular products or particular brands and then try and find out who we are, you know, what we're all about. And that often means they end up either landing on our website. You know, of course we're, we're there to present who we are, what we're doing and the products, or they actually find a number of different reviews that we've done with different publications. And these reviews are really important because when we send our bikes to the reviews...
1: All right, so I'm actually quite fascinated about the whole reviews, you know, you see them in magazines. Um, t- tell me, how do you work with them? Um, do you just like, reach out to them and send your bike to them? Yeah, so, you know, f- through my years in the industry, I've built
0: up some good relationships with various different publications and magazines, online and uh, print. So those relationships are, are really important as far as developing reviews. But that's not to say that we want to influence what they're saying and how they're saying it. So, you know, after we've done all the product development and the testing, you know, we want to give them you know, complete authority and autonomy of how to review the product. So we we try and build up the bike to their specifications and the desires. So we, we work with them in terms of the bike sizing, the bike fit, you know, if they prefer ETAP or they prefer Dura Ace, whatever, we try and source all those components. So
1: you're completely building the bike.
0: Yeah, for the reviewer. You know, and, and we're, we're trying to get the, because the end of the day, is if they enjoy the bike, it reflects positively on the product. So we're trying to de- deliver something to them that they're gonna feel inspired to ride. You know, if they're a die-hard uh, SRAM fan and, and you give them a, a Shimano product, you already started on the back foot. So we were trying to create a positive image, you know, by providing them the product that they want. So we, we make sure that the steerer tube is cut to the right length, it's, it's all tailored to what they want. And then we deliver the perfect product but after that we give them full autonomy to write what they feel about the product so we don't try and influence that of course where they have some questions and where they have some queries about a certain performance characteristic and you know not really concerns but they, they, they have some questions they come to us and we try and explain why it is like that you know why we designed it like that just so that they have better knowledge and information that they can write in a more positive
1: way. All right. so you must have got a bad review. There must be a review out there, you think, fuck's sake, what did we do wrong? How do we fix it? Um, can you talk about that or can you share like that, that kind of experience?
0: Actually, the funny thing is, you know, we've worked with uh, Cycling Tips and Bike Radar and Cycling News, and so far, they've been extremely supportive of our product uh, through the reviews. But actually, the interesting thing is that they've been not so complimentary about some of our part suppliers so you know when when they've reviewed a particular bike they've come back and saying oh you know the frame is fantastic i love it however the wheels that you put on there you know and we work with partnerships with different different brands you know they've said some negative things and we give those brands an opportunity to answer those questions and often it gets ironed out but frankly as far as our own product is concerned which is the frame we actually have never had a negative comment So, it's not really a compatibility issue regarding a wheel or a a handlebar or a saddle. It's just, you know, sometimes it's been built in a particular way which didn't necessarily fit the reviewer's requirements. And after a bit of conversation with that particular part supplier, things get ironed out and and everything is fine.
1: Yeah, so I never actually thought that would be a thing. Like, you know, you're putting things together, you're putting the components on, you're sending it out. And actually, the other stuff is letting the bike performance down. So would you say there's a bit of a flaw in the whole review system as well? Well, yeah, you can use the word flaws, but at the same
0: time you can use um, preferences. Yeah, I mean, some people just simply prefer Shimano over SRAM or vice versa. And um, also the important thing to to also emphasize is that, you know, the bicycle frame is just part of the equation. You know, you could have, you know, the most expensive frame in the world, but if you put some really poor quality wheels on there, it's still gonna be a bad bike. So, you know, we try and work with our various different partners in components and stuff like that to match the frame that we're trying to promote with a particular wheel set that we think is is the best match. So for the Terre, which is an all round bike, we would match that with a 35 or 40 millimeter deep carbon wheel. But then with our Rare, which is our aero road bike, we'd go for slightly deeper wheels, like a 50, because you're trying to emphasize the aerodynamic performance of that particular bike not only through the frame but through the component choice so we're tailor making not tailor making but we're tailoring the requirements of all the parts and the components that go on the frame in order to give the 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 effect that we want in terms of the performance and of course that often reflects positively on the actual review
1: okay okay so let's pretend we've jumped on a lift we're going up 45 uh, floors and you've got a 30 seconds to chat to me about, you know, why I should buy a chapter two bike. Like how, would you, how would you hit me with, uh, with the elevator pitch?
0: I think my, my elevator pitch there would be, if you're looking for something that's really unique, boutique, got an interesting story, is priced well, and has incredibly good performance, chapter two is a very viable option. Okay, there's many brands out there, but if you're looking for something different and unique, definitely we offer something really good.
1: Okay, so, so hit me with the two big differences between the, the two bikes you currently have out on the market. Probably three by the time this uh, podcast goes live. Okay, so
0: the Terrier was our first bike, launched last July. And as I said earlier, we designed that to be an all-around bike. It's got uh, good performance in pretty much in every area. It's got good performance in aerodynamics because we designed it um, in the wind tunnel at Auckland University. We're using cam tail design, which is a truncated aerofoil shape. Um, And that pretty much can do everything, it can sprint, it can ride up mountains, it's pretty comfortable. We've designed the seat post with a bit of comfort in there, you can ride that all day, but you can race that as well. But then we also recognize that there are people who really want a pure aerial frame. So that's where the Ray comes in. So even before we launched the Terre, our first model, before that came to market on the 1st of July, the Ray was already on the drawing boards, it was ready in full development mode and we knew that okay we wanted to differentiate the two different parts of the, the business. One was an all-round bike, one was an aero road model. And you know, and thankfully, you know, we, we developed a, a really nice product. So the Rare is somebody who's you know may not live in a very hilly kind of place, you know, some flats, they, they love to ride you know aero fast bike but often from time to time they may want to do some triathlon or a time trial and we design the seat post that can be reversed. So when you reverse the seat post, it actually moves the saddle forward by 34 millimeters, which is against the UCI rules, but when you're doing you know, a triathlon, you know, it's not under UCI rules, you're gonna be in a better position for aerodynamics. So it's about trying to design two different bikes that meets two different market segments.
1: So what makes an aero bike then? So if someone's looking for an aero bike, what, uh, what, what kind of spec would they be looking for?
0: With the aero bike, you know, the, the, the lateral stiffness is often the, the biggest challenge. So, because the aero profiles are, are narrow, you're trying to get the stiffness that you need in the bottom bracket, and the various different areas, and you often have to do that through engineering. So we want the performance through the shape of it in terms of aerodynamics, but we don't want the bike to be too soft, laterally. So we actually spend a lot of time engineering the carbon fibre and putting the right type of carbon fibre layout and the right grade of carbon fiber in specific locations to get the performance that we need. And to, to kind of reverse engineer that into the stiffness that we can actually match the Tere, it means that the price goes up, which is one of the reasons why the Rare is, is the price point is a little bit higher because the carbon fiber that's in there is a higher grade, higher tensile strength to get the stiffness that we want.
1: You mentioned not taking this out in the hills, the Aero bike. Um, and for people that are really on a flatter kind of area like what why is it so important not to be riding this in the hills um, you know at the end of the day you know they have different bikes for
0: different uh, purposes so a pure climbing bike yeah exactly yeah and that gives us the opportunity to sell more bikes at the same time of course which is always nice but at the end of the day is, you know some people like to ride in, in flat areas where aerodynamics are more important and some people live in a hilly area and you know having a, a different options is great and we have a lot of customers that own both bikes and sometimes they're riding like the aero bike the rare and other times they're riding the terre and we give that choice and option to the consumer
1: okay so in the in the bike industry kind of like i see kind of mostly passively that there's not really much going on you've got this whole disc brake kind of change and um, what are you kind of like from your kind of viewpoint your perspective what do you see as the the future of of the industry and what's kind of What's the next thing? What's changing or uh, what is the future? Well, I think I think what's happening in the last two or three years
0: has been this development of integration. So you see a lot of the cables and all the wiring and the hydraulic hoses being fully integrated. And that means, you know, that the handlebar and the cockpit all comes from the same supplier. You know, you don't see any cables at all, except when it pops out, you know, where the brakes are or where the derailleurs are. So that's been a, a pretty kind of big development in the last three or four years. Um, that has its pros and its cons. Um, obviously, if you're a big manufacturer like Trek and Specialized, where you can com- control your entire supply chain up to the final product with wheels and group sets, you have a great opportunity to sell a product which has a fully integrated system. But for a brand like us, where we want to focus just on frames you know, and, and let the actual end user decide what components that they want to put on there, it's very difficult to, for us to control every aspect of that decision-making. So even with our aero road bike, where many manufacturers and brands are going through this whole integration of all cables, we actually have designed a handlebar cockpit unit, uh, which is a one-piece unit, you know, but the cables actually come out. And there's a couple of reasons for that, because, you know, we want to design a, a piece of accessory which has got really good performance. Not only does it fit on one of our bikes, but actually you can buy that as a separate product that can fit onto any bike. So as long as it's got a one and in one-inch steerer tube, you can buy the MANA handlebar and fit it on your bike. So it becomes an additional accessory, an additional product that we can sell. And obviously from a business perspective, that's good as well. But also from a user perspective, you know, personally I travel a lot with my bike, either through business or through racing. And I've, I just know from a lot of people that I've traveled with, that when you have these fully integrated systems with all the cables, Inside the head tube and inside the steerer traveling the bike becomes incredibly complex Because when you take the, the handlebar off you need to be able to fold that Alongside the frame and zip wire it or zip tie it to the frame with packaging to put it into a bike bag And that becomes incredibly complicated and difficult if you're not you know mechanically proficient or you don't have the confidence to do that and Probably through that personal experience of traveling a lot I wanted to design a bike that not only has good performance, but actually it's easier to pack into a bike bag and travel with. So that's kind of where I see what we're doing slightly differently from what everybody else. It would have been definitely within our, our designing abilities to integrate everything, but we didn't see the, the user requirement for that as far as our customers are concerned.
1: And so do you think there's a bit of a, a, bit of a short-term kind of future that you can focus on? the short-term future is definitely going to be um, disc
0: brakes so you know in our market which is predominantly in Asia at the moment uh, the, um, the the take-up on disc brakes has been relatively slow and I think that's partly because you know in Asia people generally have a few bikes and they have quite a few sets of wheels so you know it's a little bit like going from 10 speed to 11 speed It's a painful process an expensive process to take that leap so that a lot of them aren't quite there yet and because they, the market hasn't seen that requirement in the Asian market. It also means that the suppliers aren't necessarily supplying all the group sets and the components for disc brakes and the wheels aren't available in the local market. But I think you know, since 2008, this year, just before the Tour de France, the UCI have, a, have formally removed this so-called trial period for disc brakes. So now all the pro teams and through their sponsorship are pushing uh, disc brakes. So I think, you know, in the Asian market where the, what the pros ride is, is quite influential, we're gonna see the adoption of disc brakes grow very, very rapidly. We already see this in Europe and America where they're looking for more just performance and the disc brake is, is clearly a better option. So we see that in the, in the short term future, at least, the disc brake is gonna grow very, very quickly. And frankly, from our perspective, it would make business a lot easier if the rim brake disappeared altogether, because then our stock management and our R&D and our mold costs and things like that would be significantly simplified, because it would just become a single product.
1: So, what about working with um, with pro teams to help push the product and help market it? You know, what, what's your kind of view on it? And you mentioned about the Tour de France, and you have to kind of be there to to really make a product work. Um, but you're also committed to working with a. Um, American cycling team Um, what what was the experience working with them?
0: I think when you're looking at it purely from a business point of view um, you know having a a pro team is only really relevant and the return on invest makes sense if you're at the Tour de France so for example um, for any company or brand or or sponsor involved in in high-level sponsorship in cycling 60% 60% on their return on investment is at the Tour de France alone. So that's why there's this huge pressure for sponsors and companies involved in cycling to be at the Tour de France. So you know everybody's pitching to be at the Tour de France because the returns are so much higher. So conversely, that also means that when you're not at the Tour de France, sponsorship in the sport becomes incredibly difficult to measure and the return on investment becomes diluted and, and minimized. So my experience when we were sponsoring United Healthcare um, in America when I was running the Neil Pride brand was that it has limited real exposure. But what it does do, actually, because at the end of the day you're still putting the product under a professional cycling team, and the, the response that you get from the riders and the feedback that you get from the riders will actually help you develop a better product. So it can work in both ways. I think on a product level, definitely having the products at the pro level will help you design and develop a better bike. But at the same time, from a marketing perspective, not being in the Tour de France means that you get discounted significantly in the market as far as exposure is concerned. And you think it's something
1: that you'll probably try and do again?
0: Uh, yeah, it's something we aspire to, you know, we, we, we want to be at that level because we think our products are at that level, but we need to work our way up there because, you know, to be at the Tour de France for a bike manufacturer, it's about 200,000 euros in cash and, you know, and you haven't even given them any product yet. So after 200,000 euros per year in cash, you still have to give them between 100 to 180 bikes depending on the size of the, of the, of the team itself. So. We want to make sure that we are ready for that before we take that leap, and that obviously means having good distribution around the world because it makes no sense to spend all that money to de- create demand if you can't deliver the product so the, the two things work hand in hand you've got to develop the product, the marketing and your ability to deliver the product to the consumer hand in hand before you, you kind of pull the trigger on those big expenditures.
1: So you're basically saying like so the way and the only way in to make it successful is to have a big big water cash and a big team to help kind of do things for you.
0: Yeah, then you've got to have deep pockets. You know, and you look at Sky, I mean, it was just reported a few days ago that their budget was something like 34.7 million, or almost 35 million pounds, I think it was. I mean, and that outstrips any team, and which is why they got the results. Okay, they have extremely good riders, but at the end of the day, those extremely good riders come at a cost. And when you're Sky, when you can write those kind of checks, you know, to develop the team, the resources, the infrastructure, it delivers results. You look at Garant Thomas, you look at Chris Froome, you know, the the team in general has delivered all the best results in the last five or six years.
1: So I've kind of got a a small example here I kind of want to put to you. Um, I remember um, Rafa was a big part of Team Sky and allegedly, um, when they kind of decided to pull out, they kind of said that that was not really the kind of sponsorship deal that they thought was going to that, that, that didn't work out, basically. Um, do you think there's, there is a danger of actually, if you do go mainstream, you do work with the big team, that your product be- could become a bit too mainstream, not the niche kind of uh, product you want to develop anymore, um, and there's no kind of longevity to it?
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a, a chicken and egg thing. I mean, at the end of the day, as with any business, change happens. Of course, from an emotional level, because I've been riding bikes all my life, there's there's an emotional part of me that says, I would love to have a Tour de France. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a New Zealand brand, you know, being raced at the Tour de France? I mean, there's an emotional desire to be there, but whether that that makes business sense is another thing. And frankly, we probably wouldn't be there for the next four to five years. And between now and then, a lot can change. And frankly, if we can hit the targets that we want in terms of profitability and business without spending that kind of money, well, why go there, right? So there's a business desire, but then there's also an emotional desire. And it's weighing up those those two different things, you know. And unfortunately, often the, the business end of it wins because at the end there you have got to make money, so you can't avoid that, you know. And writing a check for two hundred thousand euros, you know, you know, I don't take that lightly.
1: So one of the things I'm curious about as well is when you kind of look into your brand and, and, and how you how you deliver your proposition. Um, It seems to be obviously focused on the Asian market, which we talked about. So what about the European and the American market, you know, massive, massive players in the in the bike industry? Um, What's your kind of rationale for for not going for those markets just yet?
0: You know, we made a very strategic decision at the beginning when we started chapter two to not try and be everywhere. Because to be everywhere costs a lot of money. To, to To have presence in all those different markets all around the world a significant amount of money because i travel a lot and i have to go to these markets probably two or three times a year and that amount of time away from the office um, can can really hurt the business so that's why asia pacific was right for us to tap into because it's extremely accessible for us and as i said earlier it's it's cash rich people love really beautiful looking products that perform well so we've actually given a lot of traction in asia and with that profit that we earn in asia that allows us to invest in infrastructure in Europe and America. At the end of the day is, we can do the business in Asia from our office in New Zealand or from our other office in Hong Kong. But to reach into those much larger markets, at the end of the day you have to actually have open a proper office because you know to talk to dealers there and to talk to consumers there, you have to deal with time zones, cultures, languages. There's all those barriers that that prevents you from running the business out of asia so we're in the process of trying to develop a strategy and a plan to actually open an office in europe and one office in america to really kind of leverage those assets to build the business because just doing it from new zealand is just too challenging
1: and how do you think your um, your communication the way you uh, engage in the way you um, deliver your message um, in those markets do you think it will just be the same Uh, as you do in Asia, just kind of like reapplying that back to the American market? Yeah,
0: I I think so. I mean, we have a really unique situation in Japan. So, you know, in Japan we started the business based on a consumer direct business model and we got a lot of traction very early on. So the business really grew very quickly for us. But then a lot of the dealers who saw what we were doing wanted to understand (coughs) a little bit more about who we were as a brand, what we were trying to do and ultimately they wanted part of the business, they wanted to be involved. So we did quite a lot of investigating in Japan to find out how we could also structure the business in such a way that we could also benefit those dealers. So what we effectively did there was that we restructured our pricing in Japan to such a way that there was sufficient margin in the business to give the dealers the opportunity to buy on the internet. So in Japan, we give the consumers the choice of whether they want to buy from us directly, in which case we ship to their home, or the dealer buys it for them. So a consumer can walk into any shop in Japan, ask for a chapter two, and the, the dealer simply goes on our website, they have a particular discount, discount code which they can put onto our website, and they get their margin, and they just get it delivered to their doorstep. The dealer is happy, the consumer's happy, because you know, the, now the consumer's got a place that they can take the bike to to get it all built up. So it's a really kind of happy medium. And because we only sell frames, the dealer is an integral part of that process. We're not like Canyon where we're trying to exclude the dealer. We're very, very pro-dealer and we're trying to integrate them into our business model. And that's why I think ultimately in Europe and in Japan, that's a business model that we're gonna apply. At the end of the day, we wanna give the consumers the choice to do what they want. Whereas at the moment, there's the kind of um, this way or that way. If you're Canyon, you can only buy via their website. Or if you're a normal brand like Specialized in Trek, you have to buy from a shop. But what we're saying is that, okay, we're gonna give
1: that choice to the consumer. The consumer gets to decide how they buy it. So ultimately we win.